In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Jordan Klepper is a Comedy Central staple, having hosted two documentary series and the network's earlier late-night talk show, The Opposition. But you probably know him as this guy. This is Jordan Klepper, Fingers the Pulse. This past summer, Trump flag waivers spouted a lot of theories about Hillary Clinton's health. I headed to Trump rallies in the crucial swing states of Ohio and Wisconsin to discover what his supporters know that the rest of us don't. It could be AIDS. What makes you think she has AIDS? Uh, the way her uh, husband used to be. So you think Bill had AIDS? Yes. So how did Bill Clinton get AIDS? Probably messing around with uh, Magic Johnson. Jordan Klepper is the king of interviewing Trump supporters in their natural environs. In his role as a Daily Show correspondent, he started going to Trump rallies in January 2016, just as the campaign was really taking off. Man-on-the-street interviews are inevitably cherry-picked and should be taken with a grain of salt, but simply by turning on his mic and asking questions, Klepper creates an important document of this particular segment of Donald Trump's base. And one of the most unbelievable discoveries yet. Barack Obama had big part of 9-11. Which part? Not being around, always on vacation, never in the office. Why do you think Barack Obama wasn't in the Oval Office on 9-11? That I don't know. We'd like to get to the bottom of that. Klepper is from one of those crucial swing states he now studies, a middle-class kid from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And he was a smart one. If you don't know him as a star of The Daily Show, you may know him as the 1996 National Mock Trial Champion or the recipient of one of Kalamazoo's most prestigious math scholarships. Klepper's intelligence, however, did not translate into foresight when it came to the coronavirus. Being prepared is something that's not my sweet spot. I, I had a couple cans of beans and my wife's podcasting equipment. You and I are brothers because my wife has a podcast and my wife has, they sent her all this honking equipment. And what really hurts most of all, because she, she says, she, she, I'm, I'm, I'm in my wife's office right now using her equipment. She has the better equipment. And as a result of having better equipment, my wife is actually making more money than me for the first time in this, this year so far, year to date, <laughs> selling skin cream on Instagram and diapers and butt cream, butt paste. 
I think this quarantine has really highlighted the importance of producers. Everybody else who's trying to do it at their own, it's like, you know, I'm a comedian, I'm a performer. And then you're like, you don't know what lighting is? Have you not been talking to grips? You've been on sets for years and you don't know the importance <laughs> of not putting a light right behind you. It's like, I just, I need somebody to hold my hand at all times. Lauren Michaels had a great line. He said, you know, the, the logo, this is years ago. He said, the logo for YouTube is broadcast yourself. And Lauren said, you know, over time, we've realized a layer of executives and producers isn't really a bad thing, is it? To decide who's ready to broadcast themselves. Who's really <laughs> ready to make that step? I don't know. But now you grew up in, uh, born and raised in Kalamazoo, correct? That's right. Yes. Kalamazoo, Michigan. And nobody in the family was in the arts, musicians, comics, actors, nada. Well... My parents know we were you know, a blue collar family. My dad, uh, a brick salesman. My mom was stay at home mom and she also worked in the schools. Although we did have the funny, strange connection is my mom's cousin and my dad's college roommate uh, was Tim Allen. And so I would see wow. I would see Tim Allen every uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas. And that was just as he was a stand up when I was like a kid, and then he got home improvement. And so it was the first little uh, insight into the industry, getting to watch suddenly Uncle Tim be up there on television, which was quite the exciting treat when you're a 10-year-old at home and watch somebody you know actually on your screen. Yeah. the um, um, You uh, were, I mean, I don't want to say nerd or wonk, but say you it. were math major, uh, uh, mock trial champion, Oh, uh, you were kind of a you. You were a smart guy up to a point. You were making some really good decisions up to a point. I, up to a point, I was a pretty. You were smart doing guy. things that mattered up to a point. And yeah, then, that, that, yeah. There's when, when I was under the tutelage of my parents. I was studying. I was a four point kid. I got a math scholarship. I did mock trial. It was funny. I went back when I had my wedding after. 10, 15 years outside of the nest in this entertainment world doing improv, my parents got up to speak in a room full of all of my mostly new friends. And they spoke primarily about my experience as a national champion mock trial person. And the entire room was like, I don't even know what that is. You never bring that up. And it's like, oh, right. For my parents who experienced this with me, that's who I am. I'm a guy who's way into the law, who's way into math. To my friends, now I'm the person who likes to pretend to be wind or a tree on stage for no money. So, <laughs> so they had to reconcile these two You're people. I was a method I'm a beefsteak tomato. <laughs> Wasn't that the line he had? But, but my path was the same where I was going to go to law school. And someone kind of like just dared me to audition for the NYU acting program. And I got in. But there are times I stop and think, did I... Did I Go the right way in the fork in the road, you know, because this <laughs> business is so non-meritorious. Although I will say I, I had a very, it was a similar path of like, when I got into college, I did the improv team and somebody was like, you should try this. This is fun. I think what was so eye-opening for me at the time is what I found in the arts and, and or improv specifically was like, I'd never been asked to kind of think in that way. It was creative. There was no yes or no. There was no right answer. And I was suddenly around people who were very curious in different ways. I loved the math world. I loved the law world. I loved the academic world. But 
uh, I was very much on a path of like, these are the things you do to get these uh, outcomes. And then suddenly you hit improv and you hit the theater types and folks and you're reading plays, you're reading scripts, you're making things up off the spot. And suddenly it's like, well, there's no right answer. We want to know how you feel. And I, I think I'd gone 18 years where it was like, oh, nobody asked me how I felt about this. They just asked me like, what was the, the slope of this, this line or this angle? And for, that, was, that was really kind of a game changer for me. So when you, when you are in the math world and you're going to school, are you devouring comedy and absorbing comedy and watching the world of comedy evolve on TV and in perform? Are you going to comedy clubs? Are you the funniest guy in the room? High school, my bedroom is full of Jim Carrey posters. I'm watching SNL every uh, weekend. I'm coming home uh, after school and I'm watching General Hospital with my mom and then watching <laughs> Whose Line Is It Anyway <laughs> alone. And I get to college and I start playing around. And because I'm still an academic, I'm like, well, I want to know everything about this. And so because we're in Michigan, I go to Chicago and I go to Detroit to learn about the second city. And I, I see that live and suddenly devour Why? that. Why? <laughs> why Why go to Chicago? No, no, no. Meaning, did you kind of get a sense mm -hmm. when you're going to Kalamazoo and you're a math major from day one when you're there, you're going, I don't know. Any minute I may go into the theater program. <laughs> you know, Call me crazy. Orientation week, I walk on it. So it's a small college, Kalamazoo College, campus of, I think it's, it's 1,400 people. So it is this, I, I could be a big fish in a small puddle. And there's an improv group. They say, audition for it, see if you can be in it. And in my mind, I'm like, you know what? I like this whose line is it anyway thing. I'm kind of a funny guy in my math classes. I'm going to audition for this. And I tell myself, there's a lot of people auditioning. If I get to be in a show in the next four years, that's a success. And I do that, and week two or three, they cast me. And it's like, you're in. And I'm like, oh, well, this is, this is more success than I expected. And you get that first laugh. And I'm like, actually, I like this so much more than I thought I would. I know, But at that point, I'm like, I got a math major, and I got a scholarship that paid for me to go to college. But I did that Again, at this point, I, I did that thinking through what my future would be. And I was like, if I can get college paid for, I might not be a math teacher or go in and be an actuarial scientist. I'll find something in college that I care about. And at that point, I'm like, this is the one thing I'm good at. It's the one thing I enjoy. I don't know how it's a career. And to be quite honest, I don't think I figured that out for another decade. But I was still curious about these things. And so suddenly six months in, it's like, you know what? I like this. I'm going to take an acting class. You know, I'll take a, I'll take a lighting Tell design class. Tell us about class. Ed Menta. Yeah. Oh, Ed Menta is, I mean, he's, he's the guy. He's the head of the theater arts program at Kalamazoo College. And he was the guy who sort of shepherded me into the world of uh, performance. He's like, you're funny, you're smart, but if you want to know about this stuff, there's like a, there's a legacy here. Go to that, understand that. And he's a theater nerd who's going to talk to you your ear off about Sam Shepard, Ibsen, but he had Jeffrey Sweet's book, Something Wonderful, right away. And I was like, you got to go to Chicago. Let me tell you about Nichols and May. This is how uh, comedy started in America when it comes to sketch and improv. And so I jump in and I'm certainly reading Viola Spolin. I'm going to Chicago to watch people <laughs> improvise. On Friday nights, I'm driving to Chicago and I'm seeing late night shows at the Improv Olympic. And he was really the guy who walked me through that. Uh, I put up my first sketch show. He introduced me to people in Chicago. I went to Chicago and got to meet the people I was reading about. What uh, year is that? 2001 is when I moved to Chicago. Graduated. Uh, one of the first shows I see in Chicago, which might have been 2000, I was still in college at the time, I see Rachel Dratch on stage, uh, and she's the funniest That'll thing you it. ever say. That'll do it. You're like, yeah. what is this? And you're in live theater, people are laughing, like... 
They're so engaged. It's smart. It's ridiculous. It's alive. And, and it's, it's all. You tell me if you th- don't agree. The comedy that I liked when I was younger, I watched F Troop and the Munsters, and I watched uh, uh, the Adams Family, and all these kooky shows. They were clever. They were wonderful actors. Funny. Uh, deadly timing and so forth. But there was a bit of warmth to them. They weren't snarky, like Rachel. There was an innocence to them and a sweetness to them. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that attracted me most to you was it was not nasty. Oh, well, that's that's kind of you to say. I think actually you've hit on something that people don't talk a lot about with comedy. Often people talk about like, the edgy comedians, and trust me, I, I love my Carlins and I love the, the comedians who can cut to the quick like that. But I will say in the improv world I came up with, you're right, there's a warmth because it's a, a art form that's sort of built in collaboration. And one of my one of my early coaches was Keegan-Michael Key, who had moved from Detroit to Chicago. He's this theater nerd who is also the best person I've ever do, seen do sketch comedy. He was built to do sketch comedy. And he was like, I want to work with some young students. And I'm like 23 at the time. And so you work with Keegan, and he's like the kindest, warmest, smartest person yeah. you're going to run into. He's doing this work at night that's just mind-blowing. And I think like, like I grew up and watching people like that. I loved Python and you love the Michael Palins as well, who sort of bring like an innocence to it, but it's not at the expense of intelligence. Carlin, I think, was edgy and acrid, but everybody he gave it to deserved it. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> really, they really did deserve he, he's it. He's not punching down. I think that's, you know, that's one of the early things. If you're punching in the right direction, take those swings. <laughs> like whatever your whatever, whatever your tactics are, use them, but but swing in the right direction. Now, when when you are when you're there, and uh, uh, Menta says you should try improv. Well, I mean, obviously, when someone has a lot of academic promise, and you come from a middle class family, how did your parents feel when the scholarshiped mathlete decides I'm going to go live in poverty? You know, I'm I am I am fortunate beyond belief. I think they were they were. They were and continue to be my my biggest fans. Like I, I'm I'm doing basement improv shows at 19, and I'm and they're coming. <laughs> they're the, they're like the the parents who are there amongst amongst a bunch of drunk college students at a terrible performance. And I think they the one thing my family, which you know, as I embark on a family of my own, I I I respect most and got most out of it. My family always showed up my grandparents, and we were lucky. We were a small town in Kalamazoo, but if I had a basketball game, my family was there. My grandpa would show up, my grandma would show up, and like they always were there. And so when they got to watch me find love in this thing, be terrible in this thing, and when graduation came, I'm like, I don't exactly know what I want to do with my life, but I like, I, I'm, I'm interested in this world. The math thing, it got me through, now I have no debt. But the theater thing, I'm curious about. I love Chicago. I was going to give it a year. Did you say the same thing? Did you say, I'm going to dabble in this? I, I was bad with deadlines, but I was definitely not a dabbler. I think like still the mindset of a mathematician, like junior year, it starts to uh, uh, dawn on me. It's like, I like Chicago. I think I want to give this thing a go. How do I make that work? I wish I had the ego to be like, I'm going to kill this thing. I'm going to walk out and do it. But I'm like, I need a game plan. I need to make money. And so I'm junior year, I'm like, I'm not thinking about getting that acting job. I'm thinking about getting that service job that'll help me support <laughs> trying to get that acting job. Yeah. So I got a catering job my the junior year. Job. So I, I, was, I, was, I was like, I was like, job. I got a catering job. So I have references to get a job in Chicago waiting tables, which of course yeah. then 
I never worked waiting tables, but I had all of the references. And we get good at that. We're like, there's not enough caviar on top of this hors d'oeuvre. It's a little light on the caviar. It's a little bit light. I know what you guys are doing back there. I respect it, but for God's sakes, give me the caviar. Do we need to cut corners that badly here with the caviar? So you're in Chicago. How long are you in Chicago So I'm in Chicago almost 10 years. I jumped and I burned out. Why? Why? I mean, I think I'd like to say, you know, I always was was moving to that next thing. I think you get comfortable. Like, well, here's one thing. Chicago's a great town. It's a great town. And I think, you know, the entertainment industry, there is no path. But in the improv world, there's the illusion of a path. You can start taking classes. And then you move up uh, a ladder. At Second City, you get on the touring company. And then hopefully you get on one of the stages. And then you get on SNL. And there was like... There's a path when you go to Chicago for success that is beneficial for people who don't know how to make connections, but it becomes detrimental once you're there too long. And so I sort of, I got what I could get out of it for five, six years. I got better. I got connections. I got close to getting breaks. And then I got a little complacent. And then, and then I book a thing here. I, I get a pilot. I get a couple little things. I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to go to New York. Also, New York or LA, New York was always romantic to me. And uh, and also, I, I have this chip on my shoulder now of Chicago because I didn't get everything I wanted. So fuck it, let's go to go to New York. But at this point, I'm in my 30s, or I am thir- I'm 30, I think, and and now trying to kind of restart. Had all you over met your again. wife by then? I had. I met her uh, touring at Second City. And she's a masochist, so she knew what she. She knew exactly what she was getting into. The, the guy with the math scholarship <laughs> who wanted to become a comedian. She's the patron saint of lost causes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she's. <laughs> she knew it from the beginning. At that point, she had dated somebody who was a clown. She had dated somebody like she's. Yeah. She'd been in the art world. She's yeah. like, you know, what? at least this guy. He's, she he's, dated the Joker. <laughs> she dated yeah. the Joker. This guy could be our accountant and could at least yeah. trace our economic downfall. He can balance a checkbook, which is easy because there's not. Not much in the bank, so it's, 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 <laughs> yeah, a, it's a double. It's, it's a five double minutes. Win. I can tell you what we don't have. You met her where? I met her at Second City. Essentially, one of my side hustles was teaching uh, underprivileged schools in Chicagoland area uh, improv after school, and she was doing the same thing. And so we suddenly meet there. We get put on a touring company for Second City and get launched into a van across America. And you spend two years in a van with somebody. Uh, you kind of start to develop a relationship, <laughs> to say the least. You were two years in a van with her. I mean, you're you're home here and there, but it's yeah, you're you're you're. I mean, at the time, a lot of van. It, it, it's a ton of van, but you're getting paid seventy five dollars a show, so it is worth it. You come home after like eight nine shows in a month. You pay your rent, and then <laughs> where's Laura from? Where's Laura? Laura's from, from Downers Grove, uh, outside Chicago. Downers Grove. That sounds like a Jimmy Stewart movie. I've I got to tell you, if you, the image you have in your head of Downers Grove fits. Covered bridges. Oh, God, windmills, yes. Edmund <laughs> Gwen with a beard winging a bell out in front of Kresge's. They have like a claim to fame for the largest flagpole. But I looked it up and it's not height, it's width. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's... Now, where did she go? So she goes to Northwestern and she kind of, she thinks she's going to be a poet and she's going into writing programs and then suddenly finds herself uh, loving acting. Northwestern's a great school, finding improv, finding Second City. She, We laugh. Meghan Markle was in one of her classes, which is, you know, you constantly deal with jealousy in this world. But when your literal classmate becomes a princess and a movie star, you get pretty jealous and jaded. So Laura's always dealing with that. And she finds Chicago kind of the same way I did, but from the suburbs. And she's a, she's a better performer, a little bit more artistic. She was doing stuff with other theater companies, a more uh, straight theater uh, in town. Uh, but we get kind of put on this 
team together and and sort of find that we both like the same stuff we like each other and then we decide fuck it let's let's quit this team and let's move to new york and we did it about two years after we quit that i want to get to but i think it's interesting how you have a that if things had played out differently, you said that she went to Northwestern and studied poetry or literature. What is your degree in? Poetry. Poetry and creative writing. So if you had played your cards differently, you could be teaching math at the Courant Institute at NYU. Your wife could be an editor at The New Yorker, but instead the two of you were in a van for two years driving around. Yeah, again, you know, emotional choices were made. If I had stuck to the, the mathematical brain, I would be so much more successful right now and not stuck in my apartment having not thought through what happens well, when pestilence And hits. you'd be miserable. And you'd be Probably miserable. Probably true. So when you come to New York, you're in Chicago for 10 years, you go to New York. Now, the overwhelming number of people that I have worked with, whether it's 30 Rock or SNL, well, like right now, the SNL cast is remote for the shows from L.A., many of them. It's more like live from my bedroom in L.A. The comedy world is in L.A. You don't go to L.A. Why? I don't like L.A. I, I've grown to be okay with it, but I think <laughs> L.A. is a one-industry town, which is good if you want to get in that industry, and I think there's more opportunities there. I think New York's always been held this romantic appeal to me. You're, you're never the most interesting person in the room, and I think most of my time in New York has, has been failing and finding camaraderie with other people who are failing along with you, and I think that shared suffering brings... A connection to New York, a richness to New York. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think I, we're consistently talking about LA for those opportunities. But I think I've always, I've always loved the people I run into here. And so when we launched into moving to New York, we stumbled on the UCB folks. We stumbled on people who are like, if you come to New York, you're going to be hustling from day one because it's too expensive. Uh, you're leaving something behind, and you got skin in the game. And so immediately, we made our best friends here. We made people who are creative in different worlds, who are animators, who are actors, who are writers, who are chefs, and suddenly like get populated with this this rich, full life. Even if we weren't finding success career wise, I feel like our life filled out really quickly and beautifully here. And so every time I think of LA, and we still do, it's it's a career decision, uh, but the life decision can continues to pull us back towards New York. Because to me, it's... You have kids? We have one on the way. And... Uh, you have one on the we way. Have, we have... Yeah. We have one... Uh, you, you've, been, you've been with her how long now? You've been together we've been how long? now a little over a decade. And only now did you decide to get that we got, going? Uh, I think we got engaged three years after dating, held on to engagement for another three years. We put that off. And when the virus came and shut down the whole business, that's when you turned to her and said, let's have you a know baby. What? It's Come time on. to let's... double down on humanity. I really think <laughs> what this world needs is more people. This, it's going great. Let's bring something The future's out. so bright. <laughs> it's so bright. I know it's it's a really weird we've with all of this it's been so strange to both consider what's happening in the future outside of these four walls the exact moment when it was okay for us to tell people that we were pregnant correlated with the stay-at-home orders and so now this child is being brought into a world where every time we announce that he's coming it's met with like that's great also are you okay there's already this anxiety that's been attached to this little child in the womb yeah Daily Show correspondent and comedian Jordan Klepper. We'll talk Trump in the second half of the show. And like many funny men, Klepper is a deep thinker about the state of American politics. A few years ago, I spoke to the novelist and political observer Steve Erickson about how we got to our current woeful political state. His answer was especially poignant in light of the recent unrest. 
It's a lack of acknowledgement that keeps us from fulfilling the American idea. Whether they're trying to rationalize the meaninglessness of Vietnam or 250 years of slavery, it may be in the American DNA to always think that everything is year zero. Mm. It might be in the American DNA to have cut ourselves loose from history and therefore not ever have to answer for it or to it. Trump is not something that happened to America. America happened to America. And Trump is the result of that. For a link to my full conversation with Steve Erickson and his new novel, text Erickson to 70101. That's E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N to 70101. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. A van and a dream brought Jordan Klepper to New York in 2011. His relationship with the network that would make him famous started immediately, but not well. Within a year or two, I sell a pilot with Comedy Central, and I get to make a pilot, and then I get to have my heart broken when they uh, don't pick up that pilot, and I get to hope another one's just around the corner and get close and close, and then it doesn't happen. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm having l- little work here and there, but it's it's probably six years into New York until the, the big Daily Show break happens. Uh, and two years before that, I'm working pretty regularly writing on a bunch of jobs, weird MTV2 shows, reality shows, whatever kind of I can get. But it doesn't happen until about six years in when The Daily Show finally is like, oh, 
here's here's a legitimate opportunity and I guess essentially the big break. You were there for I think if I if I read the calendar the right way, you were there for about a year when John was still on the yeah, show. Yeah, about a year, year and a half with John. So I, I, I jumped in when John Oliver left to go to do the HBO show and then about a year and then John announced he was leaving and we had I think like six months more until Trevor came in. So I basically got a year and a half with John, a year and a half with Trevor, uh which was wild. I mean, it was it was a dream. I, I love The Daily Show. That was definitely a show that I was growing up watching and watching people, sp- watching The Colbert's, The Carell, The Dan Bacadals, everybody spin off from it. You were there how long when Trevor was on? For about uh, a year and a half. And then, you know, I, uh, and then I went off and did The 11.30 Show afterwards. And Trevor was really helpful and he was a EP on that as well and stayed close. And now, and now I've, you know, I still do pieces here and there with daily show but as far as like uh day in and day out i almost split almost exactly a year and a half with john year and a half with trevor which was which was really like such a mind shift because i you come into john and john was oh tell me what would tell me about the difference yeah tell i mean me. there i i walk into john stewart you know uh a guy i've been watching on television for years somebody who's one of the smartest political minds out there and i just to be able to like <laughs> to audition in front of him you know it took uh, uh, some steely reserve and some bullshit confidence that I had to muster. And then to walk in day one, I mean, I, I remember my first day, it happened so quick. And they kind of hire you because you can jump into the fire. And day one, I walk in, I had auditioned three days before, Crimea had been invaded. And they're talking about it in the morning meeting. And they're like, Jordan, you're going to do a chat on this. Come to John's office. And suddenly I'm brought into John Stewart's office. It's my first day. I'm 25 minutes into the day. And John's not only talking about what happened in Crimea, he's talking about two op-eds he's already read this morning. I fucking don't know where Crimea is, but I have to, <laughs> I have to brainstorm with John fun ideas for the show that night. And you're just in it. But I think like that show, he's like, I only hire people that I trust who can make this thing happen. And so I learned so much from him. He was clearly such a, a mentor and he was so, I think one of the virtues he had that always resonates beyond kindness and intelligence is decisiveness. Like he knew what he wanted. He knew how to get to it. You'd film a piece that needed to cut a minute and a half so that uh, it could go to air that night. And he'd make those decisions while the live audience is there um, in under a minute. He'd be like, we cut it here, we cut here, make sure you edit from this point. He just knew what he wanted. And I think that was something as I got to move it's on. It's very much like Lorne. I, I I would imagine so. Yeah, Lorne's genius was to to be on the deck of the carrier there. The water's coming over the deck. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just really pretty tumultuous to put the thing together and deciding, you know, what is the show in terms of the flow of the show and what works. Now, Leno, Leno, of course, would interview people on the street. And as I think I told you when we were talking on the phone, uh, when I was uh, sucking up to you to get you to do this show with me. (laughs) It took multiple um, phone calls. I really was holding out. Yeah. You got the uh, Grater's ice cream that I sent you, correct? Let's let's hurry this up, Alex. The... um, But, you know, Lena would do those interviews on the street with people. And, and it was, you know, like borderline appalling. You thought to myself, my God, I mean, this is staged because they, they were so stupid. What state is Washington, D.C. in? You know, Washington State. And I didn't find it funny because it was so stupid. You know what I mean? Now, you go off. When I watch you do this, I mean, I'd be howling laughing. And I don't, I don't laugh at a lot of stuff. And, and you played it flawlessly. You know, the first time you did this, describe what it was like. You didn't feel threatened or you felt relatively safe. Well, I will say what was interesting was, you know, with The Daily Show, you do Man on the Streets. And I had done Man on the Streets a little bit before for other topics. Uh, 
And then when the Trump phenomenon came, the first time I went to one of those rallies, I remember, I think it was January of that year or what have you. And we started hearing about these rallies, hearing about the support that he had. And I think what I was immediately shocked by, one was the excitement surrounding him. People were waiting in the snow. I remember our first piece, we were waiting in the snow for hours. Uh, and they were they immediately <laughs> jumped into Trump talking points in a way that the people I'd talked to beforehand, usually, usually you'd do a man on the street, people are really reserved about what they actually feel. They understand the lines of human decency or the opinions they should have out loud or the opinions they should keep to themselves. And you, what you started to see at Trump rallies right off the bat is that that line shifted. The, like, for example, uh, the, the birtherism, uh, Barack Obama, secret Muslim, those ideas were very fringy. And I remember even having done man on the street stuff before Trump, you'd never get people to talk about that. That would be such a diamond in the rough that somebody actually revealed that. But suddenly at these Trump situations, people were becoming revelatory. They're like, well, I can share this now because the guy I'm going in to see is going to say the same thing. So I can, I can begin to share that. And so right off the bat, it was surprisingly, I wouldn't say antagonistic. It was almost jubilant. People were excited. They were excited about this guy. They didn't feel threatened over the course of the next six months. The relationship to the press uh, became antagonistic. We would get heckled wherever we went, and there'd be threats of, of violence. Did. Um, did you have to have security with you? We did, yeah. And I mean, the security keeps building as we continue to go. The last one I went out, we had a few. And it, it's it's a mix. Like, if you have a camera, you're a target at those rallies and you'll get yelled at. People will hound you. Infowars might try to come up and, and bomb you. Uh, but you're also met with people who are like, I want to engage with you. I want to I want to fight with you. I want to I want to give you my POV. Yeah. And so uh, I want to straighten you out. I mean, that's the thing with we always say with like Daily Show pieces, people ask, like, why do they talk to you? And it's 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 one people like to win and think they can win, and two people want to be on television. And so, even though you have a paranoia of the press, you have a lot of people who want the attention of a camera and have the ego of victory. Right. We talked on the phone before about how you were talking to that one woman saying, uh, "You know, marriage equality." Do you think a gay couple should have the same rights as? A no, I don't. I really don't. I don't think it's fair. To the gay couple? Well, no, but. The regular couple, they work so hard, you know, and the gay couple, they want more. Do you, when you say more, do you mean equal? Yeah, they want equal in that. And that's just too much. Yeah. And the way you lead them, the way you pull them slowly over to the cliff, that one guy who was talking about, you know, respecting women. It's an American ideal that we treat women with respect, you know. Tell me about your shirt. Well, what's it say? Trump that bitch, you know. <laughs> Uh, that to me, that's like a comedy classic, that tape of yours. But at the same time, do you feel like that's become like shooting fish in a barrel? Did you ever feel like you were punching down? You know, with the, with the rallies, I feel Donald Trump plays to his crowd. And I think his crowd dictates the the policy more often than not, uh, the way in which the uh, the administration responds to their wants and their needs. So I think the pieces that I feel most proud of when we go out to these rallies are those ones where we're essentially testing the thesis. We're testing whether or not if he's going to use reading the transcript as the baseline, if he's going to welcome his fan base into that conversation, I think they deserve to be interrogated and cross-examined. And by who else than somebody who is a mock trial national champion? I mean, this this is my opinion. And I on the show, I try to avoid too much Trump bashing. But, but do you believe that these people you meet in the heartland, so to speak, 
They simply believe that Trump was the person that they were sold on The Apprentice, that he was this crack executive, this super smart, rich guy who knew how to run a company and he was decisive. How much do you think The Apprentice and his persona from that came into the equation? I think I think that's a, a large part of the equation. I think Donald Trump has been a brand in America for decades. And you realize there's a lot of people who are political wonks and will follow the day to day. But there's most of this country is too busy working other jobs to focus on that. And the brand of Trump has been for so long one of success. He reminds me of the CEO of a lot of these companies. I'd go to my dad's brick conferences and I'd go to uh, things in the middle of Pennsylvania or Kentucky and I will see like, oh, there's the big conference where everybody comes together and they see the CEO. And the CEO loves to have a flashy car, a big suit, a loud tie. And for a lot of people, that's what success is. And Trump has been the brand of that kind of success for so long that Trump supporters see that, and that has been what they're aiming for. They see that as a well-lived life. He's got a model wife. He's got a gold apartment, and he says what's on his mind. That's what they want to be. I think you mix that with uh, people needing to feel validated like their team is winning, and he's been so good at the tribalistic... Like, I'm not wearing a John McCain hat. He was standing for people. Trump stands for himself and says, you can be on my team. Yeah, I mean, if we're going specifically to rallies, you realize, oh, we're not engaging in conversations about what actually could happen within this country. I'm picking on you in a way that you're treating like an Ohio State fan. I'm a Michigan fan. I'm like, oh, these are the conversations I have with the Buckeyes talking about their team because this is your identity. This isn't your political belief. And so I, th I think liberals are going to be are going to be frustrated, continue to be frustrated, waiting for that thing that is going to change people's point of view on Donald Trump. Well, you know, to me, the, the president sees the world from a vantage point that no other human being can ever attain, ever. And it's changed as a result of that, with one exception. There's only one man who is as hate filled, myopic, self-seeking now as he was when he started the job and maybe even more so for change you need you need at least an ounce of humility where you might not know everything and with that comes asking an expert asking someone else or the ability to be to be moved i'll take the information wherever mm -hmm. i can get it and i think yeah. like it's been it's been set up so that it's only a conflict and i think trump only survives conflict by doubling down when we talk about when you're talking to people I can play logic games when I talk to folks. And I think what is often cathartic about talking to people on the streets is Trump makes proclamations that fall apart when they're pressed with logic. And I think he leaves it to his base to attempt to justify it. And there's no justification behind most of these things. Well, what's one memory among many, I'm sure, of a moment for you where you actually, even you, even you who've seen, uh, uh, who's, who's, who's seen all the ingredients uh, in the booyah bays of American political thought, even you sat there and said, oh my God. <laughs> There's, you know what, one of the last rallies I went to, there was a moment that sort of encapsulated everything. And I thought it was beautifully honest. There was a woman I was talking to, it was, it was right around, it was during impeachment. And as the storyline was going about whether or not, uh, you know, Trump is blocking subpoenas, he's not letting anybody testify, um, Bolton won't testify. Um, and there's this narrative going on, which is like, well, he claims on one side that he's completely innocent, uh, and but he won't let any information in to prove that innocence. So we go out to talk about impeachment. And there's this like, should these people testify to his innocence, if that's what you believe? And this woman was very clear. She was like, you can tell he hasn't done anything wrong just by uh, his demeanor. I mean, 
he would be trying to hide things. If you were blocking witnesses or evidence or something like that, you'd be like, oh, you're hiding something. But right. otherwise. Right. Act He's saying, let him see everything. Let him see everything. I'll prove whatever you want, want me to prove. Right. But Trump is blocking witnesses. I don't care. I don't care. And I was like, I don't you don't care. care. Yeah. I was like, I, I believe you. I think that's true. It's like, this is just a game. This conversation we're having is, this is a ridiculous statement. He said it's contradictory, all of these things. I, I heard a beautiful quote that was about like, facts don't always tell you who you are, uh, but contradiction often does reveal you. I think it was Hilton Alls who said that. And I was like, oh yeah, in these contradictions, we see the warring faction of like, oh, I believe this. He's innocent. It doesn't matter if you believe he's innocent. You, you believe this guy. You don't trust me, the media, telling you something else. And if I give you the facts, it's not going to change it. You don't care. You've already, you've already cast your ballot. The show I did after The Daily Show called The Opposition, the golden rule of that character was, may you only hear from others what you've already been telling yourself. <laughs> that show lasted how long? Uh, not long enough, is what I would say. Uh, a little under a year. And when a show like that doesn't work out, what do you attribute that to? Well, I mean, it was... Because you were doing so well with them. Well, I think, like, we jumped into that. They were at a hard time filling that 1130 slot. Uh, it's hard to put up a late-night show. To be quite honest, everybody was like, you, it takes, a, it takes a, some time, a year to two years, to get that audience. Yeah. The audience numbers were okay. They weren't blowing everything out of the water. And the network, they were like, there's six late-night shows right now. You're, like, the seventh. <laughs> we feel there's Trump fatigue. And they were... They were bummed I wasn't able to go on the road, to be honest. And they were like, that, that's why that basically ended, because they were like, we think it's overcrowded right now. Can we shift you to do a show where you're on the road the whole time? And it was kind of a bummer, to be quite honest. You build up a whole show around, you know, you, you have a 80 plus people working for you. And you're like, we, we have a couple, we have a, a couple years to get this thing going. I think we had some some great stuff, things we were proud of. But I think the numbers and the uh, crowded marketplace pushed us out pretty quick. And, and the network was in a weird place, continues to be in a weird place, trying to figure out how to complement The Daily Show in these times of lots of late night. Uh, is, is like traditional TV, sitcom, four camera, single camera, uh, uh, Will and Grace, 30 Rock or The Office, that kind of thing. Is that something that appeals to you or do you assiduously avoid that kind of thing? The casting director usually helps me avoid those kinds of decisions. And they've actually they've been vigilant in, in not giving me those opportunities. Traditional television, sitcoms, all of that are things I'm curious in and dabbled in here and there. I think as I've as I've spent time getting that daily show opportunity did shift my mindset where before that it was, I will do anything and everything. And I still am curious and love the experience of those things. But I've really gotten a lot out of being able to to be a part of projects where you get to control kind of the, the point of view and the voice. And so the projects, to be able to go out and produce my own pieces or specials or write my own stuff has kind of been the priority. To do your own thing. To do my own thing. And I think like that's incredibly attractive. And I think like I'm, I'm aware enough uh, to know that the world doesn't necessarily need my acting chops. Those are taken care of. Thanks a lot, Alec, uh, for grabbing all the, the big roles that would have obviously gone to me. Uh, sure. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, but I think I, I think I know how to wrangle points of view and kind of speak to some of these other topics. Doing the opposition, doing those shows, it was exhausting, but also liberating to kind of, to get to work through this shit. You're a purist. That is, I'm a purist, but I am going to be a father, so anything you have, for God's sakes. Comedian and generally available person, Jordan Clapper. 
his two documentary series, Jordan Klepper Solves Guns and Klepper, are funny, nuanced dives into complex issues. They're available on Amazon and YouTube. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. This instructional recording will teach you how to arm and deploy the launch device. iHeartRadio presents The Control Group, Civil Defense. Switch the indicator dial to the arm position. The Control Group, Civil Defense, coming June 30th. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows. May God guide your hand in the decision you are about to make.